welcome to It Just So Happens. I am Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and rather unprofessional historian. In this show, recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, we will explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 11th of August. That's before we delve into some of the history of the place where today's show is taking place. So, where are we? It's where Sir Sean Connery worked on the milk rounds, where Harry Potter was conceived, and a place renowned for its smell, <laughs> once known as Old Ricky. Yes, it's Edinburgh! We are performing a show in the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, the largest arts festival in the world, and our venue this afternoon is The Space at Surgeons Hall, the headquarters of the Royal College of Surgeons of Edinburgh, with its own museum, library and archive. Designed by William Henry Playfair and completed in 1832, it's one of many Category A-listed buildings in the city. During the Fringe, the space venue hosts four performance spaces and about 100 different shows. And we have an audience in the museum with us today, as the Fringe welcomes audiences of up to 400,000 people each year. So we welcome about one one-hundred-thousandth of that number to this show. What's drawn in such huge numbers? Well, let me introduce the members of the panel who have made it today. That would be Alex Hiscock and Charmin Hughes. So, Alex, as much as I know about you is, I would say, I think you're an improviser, an archaeologist and a historian. I am. All rolled into one. Would you like to say any more about yourself? Um, yes, I do all of those things. Um, I am the lead, one of the lead researchers on the TV show Horrible Histories and uh, most recently researched testicles for Richard Herring. Um, he assured me it was for a book. <laughs> I, I only have his word. So. Thank you. And Charmaine, you are a stand-up comedian at I'm, this year's Fringe. I'm a stand-up yes. comic, but with kind of, I do storytelling themes. And I think this is about my 11th solo Fringe. Mm. Um, and very glad to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, straight over to you, Alex, please, for your first On This Day piece. Okay, um, so I'm going to start with a question. Um, so the ancient city of Troy, obviously talked about in the Iliad, uh, when do you think, if anyone, please, it was last destroyed? Anyone got an idea? 2000 BC. 2000 BC, any advances in 2000 BC? 100 AD. How about 1900? We have a winner, very close, 1873. Um, the Iliad obviously doesn't go that far, um, but yes, 1873, it was destroyed by Heinrich Schliemann, a German businessman, archaeologist, and uh, the person who is credited with rediscovering the ruins in the 19th century. Now, the 11th of August uh, was one of the last days of his excavation, um, which was conducted not with trowels or shovels, but with dynamite. <laughs> um, but before I get into exactly what happened uh, on that day and throughout the excavation, uh, we need a bit of context to the type of man uh, Schliemann was. Um, now, before his archaeological exploits, uh, he made his money buying and selling gold dust during the Californian gold rush. Um, but he frequently overweighed his exports. And after complaints by, the Rothschild, um, by his Rothschild bank clients, he feigned an illness and returned to some family that lived in Russia. Now, he was a renowned con man. Um, and claimed to have dined with President Fillmore, and, witnessed, and claimed to have witnessed the cataclysmic San Francisco fire of 1850 in his diary. Now, Schliemann did neither, but used newspaper articles about both events as the basis for his stories. 
Now, after making quite a, quite a literal killing selling arms to the Russians during the Crimean War, uh, Schliemann retired from business, but dedicated himself to his second passion, Greek antiquities. During his studies, he was pointed to the town of Hisalik uh, in Turkey as a possible site of Troy um, by the English and genuine archaeologist Frank Calvert, uh, who owned the land. Now, Schliemann cheated him out of the credit and money from the excavations, which he then started without permission. Now, to uncover the, um, uncover the city, Schliemann used, used explosives um, and blew up almost all of it, um, including the top layers, layers after that, getting right to the very start of the occupation. Now, the city had been variously occupied for thousands of years, which we now know and was postulated at the time, um, but Schliemann ignored all advice and blew up everything but the very bottom layer, um, including the period uh, described by Homer in the Iliad. Now, the Turkish government uh, initially had refused him a license, but he, dug, uh, he, he blew up there anyway. Um, and, but he discovered vast amounts of gold, which he erroneously titled the Jewels of Helen and Priam's Treasure, both <laughs> characters in the Iliad, uh, despite them being about a thousand years too old, um, uh, too old for the period. Um, Turkey again refused him an export license, so he stole them and smuggled them to Athens. But before he left, uh, he blew up his hut and the excavation trenches so that no one else could dig there or find anything else. Um, he then invited Athenians to come and visit his house in Athens and see thousands of items of gold and gave gold treasures to his, to his wife, who wore them pub publicly. And he donated his gifts not to anyone in Turkey where they were originally found, but to various museums and eventually one in Constantinople. After destroying Troy, Schliemann went and blew up various other ancient cities in the Mediterranean, including Mycenae, which was the supposed home of Agamemnon. Um, again, destroying everything with dynamite and apparently holding up Roman and Greek vases from that occupation and just smashing them in the, into the ground, not wanting them for they weren't relevant to what he wanted. Um, discovering various graves, again, Schliemann found what was called the, the Mask of Agamemnon, uh, but destroyed the grave it was in, kept the mask, and we now know that the mask was dated 300 years too early to be of Agamemnon, but we don't know anything about it because the grave was blown up. Um, few people have done quite as much damage to the sites and archaeology of ancient Greece and Turkey as Schliemann, but despite this, when he died in, it, in contemporary Greece, he was buried in a mausoleum shaped like a Greek temple with a frieze depicting his excavations at Mycenae. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm going to do my first honours day segue. So question to the panel, so it's just the two of you. Mm -hmm. uh, where in the US did a group of federal prisoners classified as most dangerous arrive for the first time on this day in 1934? I think Alcatraz. I was going to say that as well. Uh, I got in there first. Ah, damn. Yes, Alcatraz Island in San Francisco Bay. They weren't the first prisoners, though. Who was already being held there? Were they keeping Native Americans there? Oh. Uh, well, creative guess. I think, I think mm. there were possibly some. I haven't got that in the detail in the paragraph I've got in front of me, but I think there might have been some, yes. Big gangster, perhaps? Coming after that. Uh, okay. So it, it had held military prisoners since 1868, including soldiers who defied orders such as deserters, amongst whom were some fighting in the Philippines. Mm. There were Indian scouts, yes, so some scouts, and Chinese civilians who resisted the US Army during the Boxer Rebellion. Mm. A few dozen military prisoners were still there in 1934. 
So, do you know what Alcatraz, the word, means in English? Rock? Nope. Named after Alcatraz, I think. <laughs> uh, it's from the Spanish for gamut. Oh. It was first explored by Spanish Lieutenant Juan Manuel de Ayala, uh, apologies for my pronunciation, in 1775 when it was a haven for seabirds. So... Who was prisoner 85 who arrived later in August 1934? Al, going off what you said earlier, I think it's Al Capone. Yes, yeah. Alphonse Caffone. I, when I read this, I thought it said Carphone, and it's not. <laughs> uh, it's, yes, Caffone, the n notorious Chicago gangster known as Al Capone. I had no idea his name was Alphonse. Alphonse. Mm. He had previously been serving time in a prisoner in Atlanta. Mm. In Alcatraz, he became a serious reader, a musician, and a composer, he kept a low profile and rarely resorted to violence unless provoked. What musical instrument did Capone teach himself to play? It's got to be the ukulele. I, I was going to say the um, harmonica, just because it's quite yeah. thematic in a prison. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Uh, it was the banjo. <laughs> oh, close! Ah, so close. Followed by the mandola, <laughs> as opposed to the mandolin. Capone was allowed to form a musical ensemble called the Rock Islanders. They were allowed to practice for up to 20 minutes a day. On drums was bank robber and kidnapper George Machine Gun Kelly. <laughs> uh, which jazz musician was kidnapped by Al Capone's gang back in 1926? Oh. Another Al? Mm, not. No, not, not the one I'm looking for anyway. Yeah, he he okay. may have been. That machine gun, he obviously already had a sense of rhythm with his right <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. It was Fat Swallow. Oh. He was kidnapped in Chicago by four of Capone's men as he was leaving a performance. He was taken to Capone's Hawthorne Inn, where he was ordered to play piano as the surprise guest <laughs> at Capone's birthday party. As much of a surprise for Fats himself, I would imagine. It's better than most gigs I've done. <laughs> <laughs> Did he ever get out? Yeah, so I know that he died of a sexually transmitted disease. Um, I can't remember if it was gonorrhea or syphilis. And he kind of went mentally downhill. So he may have got out at the very end because he wasn't he's in no mental state anymore. Well, I, um, I know um, my favourite thing about Al Capone is, of course, uh, made, made a lot of money during Prohibition. Um, one, one of the things he made more money out of was milk um, because one of the things when he, as he was getting caught what's great when you're distilling all the machinery you've got to make alcohol milk, brilliant and he just was an honest man for a few years <laughs> selling milk to the people of Chicago genuinely loved he was creaming it off Yay. Yeah, creaming it off the top yeah. um, come and see my show tonight if you want the prize <laughs> during its 29 years of operation how many prisoners made escape attempts from Alcatraz and how many were successful? I'd say that only three were successful, but we don't know if they were eaten by sharks. Is that uh, success? <laughs> Relative? Yes, so five were listed as missing and presumed, oh. presumed drowned, but they can't actually prove it, but they weren't traced afterwards either. So, 36 prisoners made 14 escape attempts, but the penitentiary claimed that no prisoner ever successfully escaped. 23 were caught, six were shot and killed during their escape, two drowned and those five were listed as missing. Mm -hmm. And that is the end of that piece. So now it is over to you, Charmin, please, for your piece. Okay, you. well, um, today, August the 11th, was very significant to the Beatles uh, on three different years. Um, so uh, 
1964, they released A Hard Day's Night in the USA. And I think this was a really revolutionary film. Um, not that people became revolutionaries, but in that before musical films been like Elvis Presley, it had been quite patronised. It had made him quite safe, Elvis. You know, it sort of contained his 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 you know powerful sexuality, so that people could uh, kind of accept it in America. Um, but with with the the thing about the Beatles, they're always trying to control their own creativity in a way that Elvis never could. And a hard day's night. I don't know any of you have seen it. You know, it's madcap. Um, it's their adventures, it's surreal, it, 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 probably the first film of its kind. And I was looking at what other films opened that year. We had Goldfinger, Zorba the Greek, Zulu, and three carry-on films. And the musicals, the only other musicals mm. which were iconic, were Mary Poppins, My Fair Lady, and The Umbrellas of Sherbrooke. Um, and the Hard Day's Night was described in the press as the Citizen Kane of jukebox music. But uh, there was a bit of censorship because they removed the term get knotted. Somebody said get knotted it in it. So that was removed. So it's obviously lucky date for the Beatles. who then went on to release on 11th of August 1965, the film Help, um, where they didn't have quite so much creative control. Um, the director, whose name I didn't write down, um, he made the madcap again, but they were very much serving... Uh, you know, his vehicle. But the films at the time were Thunderball. God, they made a lot of consecutive Bond films. Ipcrest Files, Repulsion, Shivago, Sound of Music, Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And except for The Sound of Music, you can see all those films got a lot of paranoia, Cold War paranoia about them. And in, in Help, they get kidnapped by a, you know, thuggy cult, and Ringo's got the ring, and anyway. So, uh, but the... The thing about the Beatles in these films is that they were able to express themselves as confident, almost impudent um, uh, kind of artists in their own right in society, which society might have felt a bit squeamish. There's quite a lot going on there. But then, in another 11th of August, in 1966, there was a bit of a kind of backtrack on that because earlier... The month before, John Lennon had made his famous proclamation that the Beatles were more popular than Jesus Christ. And what he meant was in our, our society was becoming more secular and that you know, he was foreseeing how popular culture was going to overtake everything else. But there was such a backlash in the States. They burnt pile, piles of records. Um, they, uh, they, he was, they were banned, and they were about to have the American tour. John Lennon was really upset. He was quite frightened by it, that he would be endangering his bandmates. So on the 11th of August, 1966, John Lennon apologised. He apologised as they landed in Boston about making uh, this statement. And, of course, it was probably the first um, anti-woke Thing that had happened, that reaction, well, except for the, the Inquisition, in that it paved the way for Salman Rushdie, the teddy bear teacher, for people to take offence and deliberately misunderstand something, because John Lennon definitely, he wasn't saying I'm better than Jesus, he was just making a social observation that was quite true. The MME said that the, the reaction American was a fantastically unreasoned reaction, 
but he apologised and said what he'd meant. The Pope had had, had claimed on this and said, you know, for an articulate beatnik, how could he insult people's religions? But what happened was they did accept the apology. They backtracked. There was a big pile of records waiting to be burnt, which would have been very polluting in the States. <laughs> and John Lennon, I don't know, I think that on the 11th of August 1966, he paved the way for this kind of compromising and not really standing by what you said. And he was forgiven, and the Beatles then became re-sanitised. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So my second segue piece now. Question to our esteemed panel. Which British Prime Minister won an international sporting trophy while in office? I... Are you asking oh, me? <laughs> I know the answer. We'll see what they say. We'll see what they say. It was going to be for sailing, and it was Ted Heath. Yes. I was going to say Gordon. Is that your answer? Ted Heath? Yes. Yes, it was Sir Edward Heath. You've already answered that question. And which sport it was? It was sailing. And what was the trophy? It was a cup. It was the Admiral's Cup. Um, it was obviously for Britain. I take that as read. Do you know what the name of his yacht was? The, oh, um, the flying <laughs> Dutch. Dutch. Morning clouds. Morning clouds. A footy one foot sloop. Uh, the five day race took him from Cowes on the Isle of Wight to the Fastnet Rock off Southern Ireland and back to Plymouth, a 605-mile trip. <coughs> 44 boats from 16 countries took part. The Morning Cloud was the last of the three British yachts to return, in 14th place overall, but with enough points to secure the return of the Admiral's Cup to Britain. Mr Heath sailed into Plymouth at 1700 BST on 11th of August to cheers from a crowd of onlookers. However, why was it controversial for Mr Heath to be sailing at this time? Did it count as a second job? <laughs> or uh, Were we about to, to, to be nuked? Um, the, yeah, the specific issue at the time was in relation to Northern Ireland. There was a growing crisis there. Home Secretary and Acting Prime Minister, Reginald Maudley, had to deal with an emergency as Northern Ireland's Prime Minister, Brian Faulkner, took the decision to impose internment of suspected terrorists without trial. And the uh, Prime Minister was off on a jolly on a boat. Exactly. So you can't Prime imagine Minister this sort of thing happening no. nowadays, can no. you? No. Another Prime yes. Minister avoiding a Cobra meeting. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, the Prime Minister's press office claimed that Mr Heath went on board the Morning Cloud as planned to avoid raising the alarm that something unusual was afoot. The Labour opposition leader, Harold Wilson, had demanded that the Prime Minister be in the House of Commons for an emergency debate on the closing of Scottish shipyards. But what did Mr Heath say were the contingency plans in case of an emergency? You'll have to catch me first as he <laughs> won the race. <laughs> um, so his yacht was equipped with a phone link to 10 Downing Street. And he could have been airlifted off his yacht by helicopter, that's what he claimed. Although his yacht would then have been disqualified from the race, but I'll take that as, as a secondary issue. Morning Cloud, the yacht, was destroyed in a storm in 1974 in which two sailors drowned, including Mr Heath's godson, Nigel Cunning. Mr Heath owned four other yachts. Can you take a guess at what any of them might have been called? Evening Cloud? That's a, that's a good guess, isn't it, Wayne? 
Um, I see where you're going with that one. Evening Cloud 2. <laughs> <laughs> um, they were all called Morning Clouds. Ah. Oh. oh. How confusing is that? Very it's rich. like calling all your kids the same name, isn't it? Uh, at this point, we would be going over to Nigel for his honest day piece, but instead we shall move on to the second half of the show and we shall uncover some of the history of Edinburgh. Now, as our venue today is Surgeon's Hall, it seems only fitting to explore some of the history of surgery in the city. So, question to the panel, who are not from this uh, nation. When do you think the first legal dissection under Scottish law was carried out in this country? And I mean a dissection of a human being. How accurate do we have to be? Oh, we can be as I, inaccurate as you wish. I think it would be late 19th century, or about 1870. Why not? Why not? Tuesday. Which one? <laughs> oh, God, there's many. Uh, <laughs> No, I'm not sure. I'm going to leave that. I'm going to go Tuesday, and if I've got one seventh yeah. of a chance of being correct. It was a Tuesday in 1702. So oh, wow. Well, no, I don't know if it's a Tuesday <laughs> or not. Uh, um, Scottish law allowed for the purposes of anatomical research the dissection of bodies in cases where the individual had died in prison or committed suicide. Mm. Now, I don't expect you to know this answer. I don't know why I've put this in, in here, but what do we know about the first person to be dissected? So, obviously, you, you don't know who it was, so mm. I'll tell you. He was called David Miles. He was executed on 27th of November, 1702, for incest. His sister bore his child, and the village found the corpse on the midden heath. Even though they claimed it was dead at birth, the bloke was done and hanged, and so was his sister, and authorised to be dissected. Now, no one had carried a corpse legally from the gallows to the cutting tables before, so what kind of tradesperson might have got that gig? Butcher. Which is, I, like, I like your thinking. See, I, I, I've been on the show before, so and I've already forgotten what you've said. Um, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to have to have another guess. I'm going to have another guess. Um, I don't know, someone, like, I'm going to go fishmonger. Fishmonger. Equally uh, uh, meaty. It was actually chimney sweeps. Oh. But they were, do you remember it now? Yeah. Yes, uh, I do. Uh, but they were whinging about the cost of the lead weights needed to hold the cloth down over the corpse as they moved it through the city in a seemly manner. Bearing in mind that half the city had already turned up to watch the execution, I don't know why they were so <laughs> concerned about being in a seemly manner. Apologies to the, everyone here in the room, but uh, it gets a little bit more gory now. How long do you think that first dissection took, given that it was their first opportunity to go through this process? Two weeks. Oh my God, two weeks. Whew. This heat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was in November. Oh. Um, remember from last time? I Think if think it was eight days. It was it was, it was nine days. Oh. Yeah, so you, you definitely along the right lines. I was on the show two days ago. <laughs> <laughs> Should it's know. been a long fringe. It's been a long um, fringe. Different medical men from the Royal College of Surgeons demonstrated upon this body each day. They mm. began with the general discourse of the body before moving on to an inspection of key organs. And I won't go into detail. But finally, the extremities uh, led to it was just the hands and feet that were left basically, and the resulting skeleton. Now it was November, so presumably it was cool. And the dissecting room had an open wall at the back to try and keep the body cool. But even then, nine days is quite a long time. The Scottish Enlightenment in the early 19th century saw Sir James Young Simpson discover chloroform anaesthesia and Dr Joseph Lister pioneer the use of antiseptic during surgery. But who was Dr Robert Knox? A medical doctor. He was a medical doctor, mm. yes, that's a good start, yes. 
the clues in what I've just been oh, talking about. Okay. Yeah. Doctor Knox. Do- Doctor Who Knox. John Knox, did you say? You're thinking of a Doctor Who joke there. No, no, I wasn't. Not Doctor Who. Because I know that the first, the first qualified woman doctor was Scottish, but she wouldn't have been called John. Jacks. And she had to, she had to, she had to qualify as a pharmacist because she wasn't allowed to qualify as a doctor. And then she went to France to complete her medical qualifications. So France was more. Forward thinking. They were more forward thinking, oh. and they would. She did everything. She actually attended all the, um, you know, medical classes, but she wasn't <coughs> able to graduate as a oh, medical wow. student. So she then she joined the Society of Pharmacists. That's fascinating. And this was many decades ago. Yes. So I'm so sorry. Yes. No, 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 that's fine. <laughs> no, that, and that could easily have been a subject for the show. And, and an I can't interesting one about. Jack. She was before the yeah, one who the hospital is named after in London for women. Mm. The Mary Elizabeth Garrett Anderson. That's four names, so presumably there's a good chance she was yeah. one of them. Yeah, no, no, she <laughs> wasn't. That was, that was the first woman doctor in England. Right. Uh, Dr. Knock, he was an influential lecturer in the University of Edinburgh's anatomy department. He attended the Royal High School of Edinburgh, where he was remembered as a bully who thrashed his contemporaries. At university, he failed his anatomy exam and had to retake it. In 1814, when he graduated, he joined the army and was posted to Brussels to attend to the wounded from the Battle of Waterloo. In 1822, he became that key figure in society where he established the Museum of Anatomy and Pathology at the College of Surgeons. He became a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, during which time he was involved in setting up a major anatomical school where he was famed for those gory lectures in dissection. However, as I've already intimated, he was uh, a bit of a complex character, shall we say, in terms of um, beating up his contemporaries at school. He was also apparently obsessed with men's head sizes. So he went around measuring the heads of men in Glasgow, in Edinburgh, as you do, and discovered that Glasgow men had bigger hat sizes. So how would you interpret this scientific information? Glasgow men are... And it's a dangerous thing to say in this room. <laughs> Smarter, <laughs> potentially, or that's at least what he thought. Glasgow men are less likely to punch him. Uh, he just thought that uh, Glasgow men were there were kind of therefore more into engineeringy type stuff, mm. Um, mm. and it kind of made sense that Edinburgh were more refined people and therefore needed less head for their brains. See, I don't know how you get to that conclusion. Science. Yeah. <laughs> um, it gets worse, I'm afraid, this Dr. Knox. He was also racially hostile to Highland Scots, Welsh people, and especially to Irish Celts, openly advocating their ethnic cleansing at the time of the Great Famine. Because, of course, he was such a nice guy with the head thing. That really ruins it, mm. my impression yeah, of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was the guy who was cutting up the bodies and, and displaying it for his students. Now... The Judgment of Death Act of 1823 decreased the number of sentences punishable by death, just as the need to train medical students was growing, and Knox's teaching methods required a ratio of about one cadaver per student. So what happens when the supply of bodies could no longer keep up with demand? Body snatchers. Yes. Technically, it wasn't illegal to steal a body, because no one actually owned it, but it was illegal to go and dig up a grave to get a body. Given that this became quite a big problem in somewhere like Edinburgh, 
how did rich families try to stop their relatives being exhumed? Mausoleums? Mm -hmm. That's one. Yeah. Um, lead coffins? Um, quite possible. Um, I know of, and I don't know if actually if they ever got made, but you would have there was um, you'd have like little bells and stuff mm. attached to various coffins. But I'm not sure if that's relevant to this or more being I think buried. It was more alive. for a case of people who are or were worried about <laughs> not being actually dead, but just mm. in some sort of coma when they were buried, so you could ring a bell. But I suppose if if <clears> if you were alive and someone came to rob your grave, it'd be quite a good thing. Uh, yes, <laughs> surprise. <laughs> and yes. So rich families, some of the things they did were logical in a way. They purchased heavy stone slabs to lay over the graves and make it very heavy and very difficult for anyone to get underneath and exhume a body. Mm. There were also things called mort safes, which were grave cages, so a bit like the mausoleums, iron grills and things to make it, again, difficult to get anyone near. And again, if you go around some of the cemeteries in Edinburgh, you'll see some watchtowers. And people would literally watch over the graves and the cemeteries to make sure that they weren't these resurrectionists coming along to dig up the bodies. Daniel Downey, who is a fellow comedian and also tour guide, made this point about the watchtowers. He said that's where the term graveyard shift comes from, which I didn't know before. Incidentally, Americans experienced something similar to what happened in Edinburgh, but later in the 1800s, and they came up with some, well, suitably American solutions. So, for example, Philip Clover patented the coffin torpedo, in 1878, which would fire out a lethal blast of lead balls when the lid of a coffin was prized open. And Thomas Howell patented a shell buried under the coffin and wired to it, so thieves triggering it would effectively set off a landmine. <laughs> One advertisement for the Howell torpedo read, Sleep well, sweet angel, let no fear of ghouls disturb thy rest, for above thy shrouded form lies a torpedo. <laughs> ready to make mincemeat of anyone who attempts to convey you to the pickling vat. Mm. Mm. Anyway, back in Edinburgh in 1827. And mincemeat of the body was even as yeah. well. Yes, indeed, yes. It's a concern about that, it seems. Back in Edinburgh in 1827, William Hare was owed £4 in rent by a fellow lodger, an army pensioner named Old Donald, when he died. Well, one of Knox's students gave Hare a tip-off that he would be well paid if he delivered the corpse to Knox, which he did, and he received seven pounds and ten shillings. What did this inevitably lead to? Well, if you can't find a dead body, you can make a dead body. Exactly, yes. So William Hare and William Burke, his accomplice, realised that this was a great way to make money if they could supply fresh bodies, very fresh if you just murdered them. <laughs> Uh, to the Museum for Dissection, and they were receiving eight pound and between eight pound and ten pound each time. However, if you shot someone or stabbed someone, it would obviously make you know it would be clear that this person had been murdered, and the police would be called. So, how would you go about supplying a body which looked like it hadn't been murdered? Suffocation. Yeah, that was their modus oh. operandi. Yes. I was going to say shouting yeah. boo really loudly. <laughs> <laughs> For those with a weak heart, yes, that would make sense. Angus Coots has a very good description of this. He's a tour guide in Edinburgh as well. Basically, between them, they would get, try and get their vagrants or their other person that they were going to murder uh, completely drunk. One of them would sit on that person who was drunk and the other person would suffocate them by closing the mouth and, and closing up the nostrils. 
Uh, that didn't always work because they did try to do the song An Old Irish Woman, who ended up drinking them under the table. <laughs> <laughs> they would carry the dead body in a tea chest and deliver it to the, the anatomy school. But on one occasion they decided to murder two people at the same time. So as Burke described them, an old woman and a dumb boy, her grandson. So this tea chest that they normally use was too small. So they transferred the corpses to a herring barrel and loaded it onto a cart. But Hare's horse refused to pull the heavy load any further than the grass market, so a porter had to be called to help transport the container. And Hare, when he returned home, took his anger out on the horse and shot it dead. Burke seemed more troubled than Hare by the pair's actions. Author George McGregor wrote, When he wakened, sometimes in fright, he would take a draught at the bottle, often to the extent of half of its contents at a time, and that induced sleep, or rather stupor. So over a course of 10 months, as far as we know, we can ascertain they murdered 16 people. What went wrong with the nice little money owner? Did somebody survive? Uh, no. Okay. No. Um, so it wasn't one of their intended victims. Presumably they were caught in the act. Kind of, yes. So uh, they ran a lodging house of which... Uh, so the person that ran the lodging house... Uh, was married to someone. The lodging house owner died and the lady left over ended up being the common-law wife of, I think it was Burke, it might have been her. So they kind of run this lodging house now which became a, essentially like a murdering factory in a way. This couple wanted to lodge in the house and they hadn't quite coordinated everything so there was still a body in the room. And so they said to this couple, oh yeah, okay, you can stay but you can't go in the room just yet. It's a bit like turning up early to an Airbnb or something. <laughs> And this obviously aroused the couple's suspicions. It's like, well, why not? So first opportunity, they had a sneaky peek into the room and saw that there was a body under the bed and then shouted for the police. However, that in itself wasn't enough to get Burke and Hare done for murder because the evidence wasn't there. The bodies themselves have been dissected, apart from this one, I guess, that was left over. So how did they eventually get to be up in court? I was just going to say, were the surgeon, the, the, the people who were doing the autopsies, mm. did they suspect that it was a bit... They fishy? started to. The students yeah. started to suspect because, foolishly, they murdered some sort of famous conjurer or entertainer who was quite well known. So oh, they God. thought that, that was a bit strange. And I think there was another body that they recognised. And again, they thought, this, this is looking a bit odd. Mm. But that wasn't enough for the students to shock them. Can you remember the answer to this question? I cannot. No, that's I fine. Wish Not I could. Weren't listening during the last show. <laughs> <laughs> um, there must have um, been a witness. They must have been observed. So basically, Hare snitched on Burke, <gasps> and he, he, he turned King's evidence. And as a result, Hare got off scot-free, as did his wife. And he was basically told to get out of the city, go south. And he was on the coach going to Dumfries when he was recognised because the court case was quite a famous case. Lots of people had seen Burke and Hare and uh, seen, uh, as it turns out, Burke get executed. So uh, the police had to keep people away to stop Hare being lynched. And then they spirited him away during the night, set him off on the road towards England near Annan. And that was the last that anyone saw of him. So who knows what he got to actually wow. down south. Well, but why would he grass him up if he wasn't so he in danger? A reward. So, so he could get, get off scot-free. But they must have suspected them. 
because they must have known people were up to it, that the people were being murdered, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So Burke himself was executed, and it was estimated that around 25,000 people from the city watched the execution. People living in the tenements overlooking the scaffold were able to make a bit of extra money by hiring out their rooms for people to get a better view of it, receiving anything from five to 20 shillings each. Uh, nothing's really changed because no. people just make the money now by hiring it out to fringe acts. Where where would um, they do? Where did they do it? Where did they kill? I think it? it was the lawn market at the top of the, or towards the top of the Royal Mile. I think that's where it took place. Uh, in which case, get a property on the Royal Mile. <laughs> I don't know what um, you see. So Burke was hanged on the 29th of January 1829, and uh, what happened to him then? Was he drawn and quartered? Oh, he was dissected. He, he was. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> on the 1st of February 1829, Burke's body was publicly dissected by Professor Monroe at the Anatomy Theatre in the old college building. More students arrived to see the dissection of the body than had tickets, can you believe there were tickets to see the show, and the police had to be called to control the crowd. The, this procedure lasted just two hours, not nine days. And during that time, Monroe decided to dip a quill into Burke's blood, as you do, and write the following sentence. Not quite sure where he wrote it. This is written with the blood of William Burke, who was hanged at Edinburgh. This blood was taken from his head. These anatomists are strange people. Yeah. Doctor's humour. Yes. I, maybe you just have to have that to do that kind of job. I don't know if there's any anatomist in today. I'm, I'm doing it down. What happened to Burke's skeleton after the dungeon? Did it go to England and go disappear into... Is his head in a museum? Uh, so, Burke's skeleton, the skeleton itself, is in a museum in oh, the skeleton. I've been claiming in every show up until yesterday that it, it's here, in this museum, but someone came and passed me from the museum to say, I've been telling fibs. <gasps> It's actually somewhere else in Edinburgh. You lied so, to me two days ago. So <laughs> it's here at the moment, it's the Anatomy Museum. Museum. So it is actually here oh, right. right now. Oh, I, should, okay. I should do my research properly, shouldn't I? <laughs> so there's, there's a death mask. There's also a notebook, which is bound with his skin. And I am reliably informed by comedian Susan Morrison, she's a comedian, that there's a much bigger volume bound with his arse cheeks. <laughs> Something tells me that might not be true. What happened to the killers' wives? The killers' wives. Wrote a book? Might as well have done, yeah. They, they got off scot-free as well. Even though uh, Nellie McDougall, who is the common-law wife of William Burke, was brought to court to hear whether she should be found guilty or not, she had actually tried to bribe a woman who had found the murder victim not to say anything and not to go to the police, which I think sounds a little bit suspicious. They both got so what happened to Dr. Knox, who had received the bodies of all these murder victims? He's a rich man, so obviously he went to prison, didn't he? Huh. No. no, he became, he, he was promoted. No, he <laughs> might as well have been, yes. He, he, he got a new career in politics. Yes. No. Um, let's say he was politely edged out of Edinburgh society. He still needed an income, so he was still dissecting bodies and still had students who were willing to watch and presumably to pay. So he had like private anatomy classes. But ultimately he was pushed out of Edinburgh Society and moved to London where he died in 1862. Now, do our two non-Edinburgh panellists know how Burke and Hare are commemorated in Edinburgh? Well, this is something I do remember, so I'll... I'll oh, so this is the bit you remember. Is I wonder why. All right. <laughs> Go and tell us. Um, there's a strip club named after them. Ah, yes. 
Only Edinburgh could do that sort of thing. Mm. Yes, there's a strip club. I do know where it is, but not because I've been in. It's at Westport in what is known as the Pubic Triangle. There are three strip clubs in, this, in the same area. And it's just beyond the site of Tanner's Close where the murders took place, which is now where the Argyle House is a 1970s building on the right as you come out of Grassmarket going to Westport. What effectively put an end to this drive for grave robbing? Donor cards. Donor cards. <laughs> I like your thinking. Yes, I've not had that before. Um, again, that's some kind of law. Yes, legislation. So there was the Anatomy Act in 1832, and that changed the legal supply of bodies to medical schools. So those who died and were unclaimed in public institutions such as hospitals and workhouses could be given over to, for dissection. Uh, there were 400 such bodies now available in 1828 in Edinburgh alone. William Cobbett had argued against the bill. He said, they tell us it was necessary for science. Science? Why? Who is science for? Not for poor people. Then if it is necessary for science, let them have the bodies of the rich, for whose benefit science is cultivated. There you go. And there was a rhyme that circulated around Edinburgh after uh, these murders. And apologies to any Scots in the audience, but uh, it goes up the close and doon the stair, button Ben with broken hair, brooks the butcher, hares the thief, knocks the boy that buys the beef. And with that, we are rapidly approaching the end of the show. So I've got one final on this day piece. This remembers comedian and actor Robin Williams, who died by suicide age 63 on this date in 2014. Here are some quotes from Robin as himself or in his film on which to end the show. A uh, set of three to start with. Number one, if women ran the world, we wouldn't have wars. Just intense negotiations every 28 days. Number two, time is the best teacher. Unfortunately, it kills all its students. And number three, people say satire is dead. It's not dead. It's alive and living in the White House. And then three in a more philosophical vein. Number one, you're only given a little spark of madness. You mustn't lose it. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Number two, you will have bad times, but they will always wake you up to the stuff you weren't paying attention to. And number three, the human spirit is more powerful than any drug, and that is what needs to be nourished. With work, play, friendship, family, these are the thing that matters. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for coming today. Goodbye.